You're listening to an ACA podcast. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, Artistic Director and CEO, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. Now in its second year, the series explores critical exhibitions and projects that have shaped Australian art since 1968. Ambitious, contested, polemical, genre-defining and genre-defying exhibitions that have informed and transformed the cultural landscape along with our understanding of what constitutes art itself. To begin, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work and welcome visitors here at ACCA. And we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people. Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of significant selected projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to new institutional models, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. The first year of lectures are available as podcasts on ACCA's website. This year, in response to COVID-19, we are pleased to present the series as filmed illustrated lectures online, with the second season continuing to explore new models and modes of exhibition making that emerge in the 1980s and 90s, including the Asia Pacific Triennial and 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art, as well as exhibitions and projects led by First Nations artists and curators in Australia and internationally, among others. Defining Moments is presented in association with our long-standing partner Abercrombie & Kent, and research partner, the Centre of Visual Art, COVA, at the University of Melbourne. It is supported by our media partners, Art Guide Australia, the Saturday Paper and Triple R, and our event partners, the Melbourne Gin Company, CAPI, and the City of Melbourne, all of whom we sincerely thank and acknowledge. For our next lecture in this year's series, we are delighted to welcome Doug Hall AM, writer, critic, and former director of Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art, now commonly known as Quag Goma, from 1987 to 2007. Doug was director of the Queensland Art Gallery when the Asia Pacific Triennial of Contemporary Art was inaugurated in 1993. Now coming to its 10th edition, the APT has been particularly influential in shaping artistic discussions, collaborations and exchange within and between contemporary art contexts in Australia and the Asia Pacific region for almost three decades. Doug's lecture will reflect on the unique circumstances which led to the inaugural APT in 1993, why it was conceived, and how it radically transformed the Queensland Art Gallery, its collections and programming, as well as its role in advocating for the building of the Gallery of Modern Art, which opened in 2006 and now hosts the Triennial. Without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce Doug Hall. Hi, I'm Doug Hall. I live in Melbourne, have for the last 10 years. Between 1987 and 2007, I was director of the Queensland Art Gallery, later GOMA. And this is about the Asia-Pacific Triennial, especially APT1. This talk is somewhat a case of looking out from the inside and vice versa. The circumstances of how and why the first Asia-Pacific Triennial was conceived, developed and happened will be a professional and personal version. The critical reaction to it and the triennials which followed are well covered and are on the record. Uh, 
Most historical accounts of the APT are accurate. There have been some strange observations which are simply incorrect. Critical reaction was varied, usually generous, and embracing a variety of perspectives depending on people's cultural circumstances and intellectual perspectives. I'm mindful that many who visited the later triennials were young, perhaps not born at the time of the first in 1993. Despite my well-known reluctance for memoir accounts, I'm pleased Max Delaney asked me to give this paper to explain things in their completeness. It's an account that is not simply about a cultural project, that is, an idea and its realisation. It is not possible to consider the APT without understanding the historical and unique circumstances of the gallery which created it. It is not a mirror of any other history you might find in the NGA, the NGV, Art Gallery New South Wales, or AGSA. The then Queensland Art Gallery, there was no GOMA then, didn't secure a permanent home until 1982 in the newly designed Robin Gibson Queensland Cultural Centre. The gallery was established in 1895 and spent much of the 20th century as a cultural squatter, and this included being a tenant in the Mount Isa Mines building in central Brisbane. It's a story interwoven with politics and rejuvenation. It's also important to discuss this because nothing like it happened elsewhere, and it's not vainglory, but it's decidedly embarrassing in its description of a, a peculiar and localised history where nothing sat as mutually exclusive from anything else. I've chosen not to presuppose too much detailed pre-existing knowledge. Some of what I offer is fresh and untold. And as an aside, APT1 was undertaken in a pre-digital age. Typing on paper recorded things and rolls of film created the visual record. In a few places in Asia, faxes were received at supporting community and business places which had little to do with the arts. It's important to know something of the gallery at the time and the broader cultural, political circumstances to give a clear picture of why APT seemed like a good idea at the time. But one thing needs to be made clear at the outset. The APT was a concept born out of the gallery's own situation. Various interests supported it after they were inducted into what we wanted to do. It was not an inspired program of state cultural diplomacy even though politicians on all sides were happy to promote it as such. This is the work by one of Australia's finest and consistent artists from the 1970s, Peter Tyndall. I think it is more immediately understood than some of his work when it is placed in its particular context. It was painted in 1979 and has an intriguing provenance. What eventually happened to the painting itself is, paradoxically, contained within what the painting represents. It speaks of something, yet anticipates something else. In 1977, Peter Tyndall won the gallery's L.J. Harvey Drawing Prize, and in 1979 he was invited to enter the Trustees' Prize of that year. This work was submitted and it was rejected. Peter sent a letter of protest about the decision to the director, alleging political intimidation. He received a letter in return saying there was insufficient space for all the works. Surely an overreaction, perhaps a case of reciprocal paranoia. Well, not quite. 
It dates to the peak of a decade when street marches were banned and where protesters were arrested or belted or both. Much of the political behaviour was decidedly idiosyncratic. There are a few cameo moments that really should be recalled. They might appear as somewhat satirical, some of them probably are, but they represent emblematic vignettes of much broader conduct and encapsulate fuller accounts of thinking and attitudes and subsequent change. They will also reveal that those with a view of uh, politics as a game of winner-takes-all, and that includes the public service, especially the police, inseparable from inse uh, sectarian political ambition. Since the late 1950s, electoral gerrymanders were entrenched. The arts were not remote from ideological politics. Now, I'd never been to Brisbane until I went for an interview in the second half of 1986. This is when Joe Bielke-Peterson's Nationals were in conflict with their coalition Liberals. And the National and Liberals despised each other, certainly more than their instinctive nemesis, the Labor Party. And distracting and being distracted from government became the norm. In late 1986, I had to fly to Brisbane to meet Brian Austin, who was Minister for Mines, Energy and the Arts. He was required to take my recommendation to Cabinet, but I wasn't allowed to be seen in Brisbane. I was picked up at the airport, um, I was put in a hotel, I was collected the following morning and taken to the Minister's office a few blocks away. He burst in the room, shook my hand, apologised for being late and distracted. He said he had a Cabinet meeting in an hour, adding, I've got condoms on the brain. Fortunately, I'd read the local paper Many in Cabinet were determined to roll the Premier and allow condom vending machines to be installed at Queensland University. The Premier lost, and that was unheard of. It signalled that his usually capitulating Cabinet had reached the end of its collective tether. I saw the Minister for 10 minutes and went to the airport and came home. In 1987, I arrived in Brisbane within a week or so of April Fool's Day. I'd had various briefings piled on my desk. Among them was a note concerning a visit a recent minister had made to the gallery in 1986. Peter McKechnie was a lay preacher and a farmer. He'd arrived at the gallery with his political advisor and began to pace out the lineal hanging space that was given to unacceptable art, and that was mainly contemporary. Seemingly, the die had been long cast. The political uh, winner takes all, albeit with 26% of the vote, and it knew no bounds. On New Year's Day 1987, Bjelke Peterson announced he was going to Canberra. He'd be Prime Minister. Amongst a mash of policy gibberish was a 25% flat tax and the withdrawal of Aboriginal land rights. The campaign morphed into Joe for PM to Joe for Canberra. But on 11 May 1987, ABC TV screened a Four Corners program called The Moonlight State. The Premier was in the United States. Within a day or so, acting Premier Bill Gunn ordered the Commission of Inquiry. Joe was in Disneyland at the time. It was announced. Ian Callanan QC drafted the terms of reference. Callanan was also a trustee of the gallery. On the 27th of May, the Premier was still in the United States when Bob Hawke called a double dissolution. That sank Joe's delusional aspiration. He didn't have a seat to stand in. The Fitzgerald inquiry would be set in place. 
it seems unnecessary to restate the chronology of what happened. Suffice to say, the Premier went nuts, behaved more erratically and had no control over something the government had commissioned. The second half of 1987 was a madhouse. He tried to sack a group of ministers and the governor wouldn't agree. On 27 November, the parliamentary party shafted Joe 39 to 9. And for days afterwards, he still claimed he was Premier. Micah Hearn was now Premier and Minister for the Arts. There was a sense of relief and it permeated throughout the government and the public service. There had been a palpable sense of being watched by ideological eyes. And in many cases, that was true. My curator of Australian art had been taken out for a drink by members of the special branch and its purpose was to check on his ideological soundness. None of the mayhem bothered me. I was left unencumbered by any political imperative and given a long leash to implement change and rethink the gallery. But some things were tricky. Prospective gallery sponsors were cautious. While wanting to support the gallery, they were uncertain about such support being seen as offering a default approval of government. Like everyone else, they wanted an election. Austin was later to be jailed as a result of charges laid in the wake of the Fitzgerald inquiry. I provided testimony which was somewhat unhelpful in explaining some of the 25 counts of misappropriating public funds. He went to jail for 15 months. World Expo preoccupied Brisbane for a year. The Queensland Cultural Centre, which included the gallery, was next to it. Many of you will be familiar with its architecture. It's one of Australia's finest works of concrete minimalism built by one of Australia's most reactionary governments. The Queensland building uh, is important for its considerations of how a contemporary art museum might function. It was certainly the first in Australia to recognise that the phenomenon of the blockbuster and that intense exhibition programming wasn't going away. It was a fabulous building to work with. Its logic and clarity of expression is pristine. Its large temporary exhibition space was in the centre of the building and built for purpose. The Blockbuster exhibition was well and truly ensconced as part of civic self-esteem, from the Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851 and all those international exhibitions which followed. The phenomenon of the Blockbuster as being critical to art museum conduct has raged for the past 40 years. Exhibition programming has influenced changes in art museum architecture more than most other aspects of their conduct. The huge rise globally of biennials and triennials is something of an echo of the colonial era of acting locally and embracing the world. When the gallery opened in 1982, it was said to be Brisbane's coming of age. In fact, most things that happened in Brisbane were a coming of age. What, what does this mean? What does it say about civic self-doubt or parochial self-importance? The Commonwealth Games in 1982, a new airport in 88, Expo and more recently a Ferris wheel, a heritage modernist experience from the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition, a markers of a coming of age. All very odd. Until 1982, the gallery never had a permanent home. It had the opportunity to rethink almost everything about what its future might be, and the staff were exuberant with the opportunity. Australian state galleries were creations of the 19th century and Queensland is one of the youngest. 
He collected in the long-standing and traditional areas of Australian, British and other European art, but it could never compare itself with the expansive, sometimes encyclopedic character of its sister institutions, especially the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the National Gallery of Victoria. There were subtle and interesting distinctions to the Queensland Art Gallery's collections. Nonetheless, the, uh, the Australian collection was far less interesting than those in Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong. Government and private support was relatively strong. But if the gallery wanted to play catch-up and try to become a mirror of its sister institutions, it would diminish its reputation. Major artists were represented with minor works, and quite a few, like Eugene von Gerard, were not represented at all. There were no epic Heidelberg school narrative works. If there were to be an historical regional emphasis, what might it look like? I pose the question. Name your ten finest 19th century Queensland painters. I couldn't find anyone that could name ten, let alone the finest. Lesser known artists were collected because a state gallery must be local, and acquiring contemporary Aboriginal art happened relatively late in the piece. Any prospect of becoming a timid version of another state gallery made no sense. Masterpieces were rare, we couldn't collect in depth and tell a coherent story, and we would pay huge sums to collect lesser works by major artists. The best known aspects of the gallery's Asian collections were the Edo period Ukiyo-e prints, a collection of Netsuki and objects from various places but without a coherent thread. The familiar museum predicament of occasional purchases and private bequests. But it continued to put together very fine vignette Asian collections. These included extending the Okioi print collection and purchasing masterpieces from the six old kilns of Japan, Shigiraki, Tamba, Echizen, Sato, Bizen and Tokaname. These connected nicely with a good collection of Australian pottery from the 50s and 60s. In other words, the gallery began to collect disparately but more tightly focused than it had in the past and contemporary Asian art would soon follow. Queensland developed sister-state or prefecture relationships and two of the most important were Shanghai and Saitama and are from Tokyo. Institutions tend to balk at these obligations um, and the expected arrangements which might follow, but they can work and work well. In late 1987, the gallery co-curated a large exhibition of contemporary Australian art which was presented at the Museum of Modern Art in Saitama. In return, the gallery presented Japanese Ways, Western Means, Art of the 80s in Japan in 1989, and purchased work from it for the permanent collection. Today it's an exhibition title which makes little sense and was probably the case then. An important exhibition of historical work was drawn from the Shanghai Museum. In return, a hugely well-received exhibition of contemporary Australian jewellery was presented in Shanghai. There was no logical historical connection the gallery had with the arts of Asia. The idea of the Asia-Pacific Triennial was a construct, just that, an idea. I'd become consumed with the observation that as the 20th century marched on, Western museums collected less and less Asian art of its time. Political and cultural shifts were developing in new ways. Prime Minister Paul Keating held office from 91 to 96 and spoke of Australia's future in Asia. 
Asia Link was established in 1990 and began to play a critical and enduring role with contemporary projects in Asia. Other small and independent spaces develop projects and whole programs and help build a consciousness change in Australia's cultural relationships with Asia. In December 1989, the inevitable happened. A Goss government was elected and Wayne Goss took on the arts portfolio too. Many people think that marked the triumph of good over evil. Well, that's pretty much largely true. The Premier's Chief of Staff, Kevin Rudd, sent Bjorki Peterson acolytes to what was colloquially known as the Spring Hill Gulag. Two-thirds of public servant heads were isolated. After the demise of what Gough Whitlam called Ancien Regime, a sense of new possibilities took hold. The APT, a Moja project, and the idea that something emerging from a small base might fail is not a common part of current museum nomenclature. Premier Goss's reaction was telling. He told me he took on the arts because political and administrative reform was certain. He wanted Queenslanders to think differently about themselves and, quote, unquote, that's where the arts come in. I worked closely with Goss and later post-politics Whitney became my chairman. But when I went to see him as Premier in 1990 to ask for a lot of additional money for the first APT, he thought it was a risk, but an acceptable risk, and he gave me the uh, ex gratia grant I asked for of $600,000. The concept of regional cultural diplomacy wasn't lost on him either. But what marked the Asia-Pacific Triennial as different from the proliferation of other biennales and triennials over the past three decades is that it was institutionally based, becoming inseparable from the conduct of a well-established art museum. It was not conceived as a project of gratuitous cultural dollar grandeur, as some block blockbusters have been, and I can, I can certainly plead guilty to that nor as an effort in soft diplomacy. In fact, we weren't sure what we were in for, and we announced we'd do three, and if we failed, we'd end them. In Australian collections, Asian art was largely art history, and the more Asia changed and became interested in ideas beyond their traditional cultures, there was a corresponding decreasing interest in what Asian artists produced, and they weren't collected. Internationalism was seemingly the prerogative of the West. To deal with geocultural specifics, a National Consultative Committee was established. It offered informed project guidance with no role as curatorial selectors. It included gallery staff, a regional gallery director, an art school head, David Williams, Asia Link's Alison Carroll, Neil Manton from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and other occasional uh, participants. One of its earliest meetings was in Kuala Lumpur. Thailand's renowned curator, Apanan Poshinanda, attended along with our Malaysian colleagues. Um, there was no uniform or rigid organisational model. It had to be flexible. Developing relationships and eventually pulling together the logistical arrangements was never going to be the same in Vietnam as it is in Korea. Equally, it's important to observe that certain Western typecast ideas of what contemporary art might look like in Asia was going to mute expectations. 
Vietnam easily accommodated the high modernism of the School of Paris with uh, culturally specific folk and colloquial figuration. Unlike the Venice Biennale, countries were not represented by artists. The APT represented the work of artists who lived in particular countries. Some post-Tiananmen Chinese didn't live in China. The assistance and support of various government agencies was welcomed, but none had a role in selection. This was not always an easy undertaking. Well-established protocols of curatorial conduct expanded into a new model. Some staff across disciplines, all with art historical backgrounds, would perform curatorial roles, each with important curatorial contacts in particular countries. Some were informal, others were connected with institutions. It was relationship-based, where local voices were heard, local cultural politics somewhat understood, and where the APT didn't brazenly invoke its Western-dominated imprimatur. The Pacific required a different approach. Despite our wish to make everything happen in person, the vastness of geography and logistics meant that for the first APT, extensive curatorial travel was just not possible. That would change later, of course, but for 1993, our relationship with the Pacific was mediated through New Zealand and their well-established network and deep understanding of cultural contexts. Queensland itself had a, a close-knit Pacific community. The APT was speculative and not risk adverse. We sought to engage people directly and had a substantial budget for curatorial travel to each of the participating countries so that unofficial and interdependent connections could be established. Above all, we wanted to connect the ideas and the institution to the people in a collegial sense. That's why we had a large budget line allowed for bringing artists, writers, curators and others to Brisbane. And why we took the risk of being a venue for ambitious projects that artists wanted to undertake but had never had the opportunity to realise. It was also important to bring, at the gallery's expense, as many artists as possible to Brisbane. Its legacy endures within an art museum context, not as an event which lingers in one's memory or through ephemera and publications which underpin a particular cultural moment. The APT had a, a few early uh, doubters who later became its strongest advocates, the records revealing wavering to eventual vigorous devotees. The purchases made from APT1 helped consolidate the dovetailing of a major project and the manner in which the gallery would operate. It developed a distinctive cultural mindset which spread across every department. Works across all media were acquired by artists from every country. Trustees never rejected a curatorial proposal. It was a case of trustees and professional staff in cultural and institutional alignment. Dada and Cristantos, for those who have been killed, 1993, was an installation which included the performance uh, component. The gallery acquired it. It was also a participatory work for the public. Private notes were made, left under a suspended bamboo arrangement and collected daily.
The APT came to represent the gallery, not only as an event, but also as an enduring commitment to our region. It also reveals that many professional and museological practices older because of the APT. Changes happen from within and not always observing and taking the exemplar of others. APT extended to 15 curatorial teams and further extended artistic, intellectual and institutional networks. While I'm keen to embrace cur curatorial unilateralism as a virtue, it is not possible to think about the APT being developed and respected without the intense collaboration of so much disparateness. At the time, the APT was viewed as an unclear venture as the gallery sought to identify a unique international role without aping the activity of other state and national institutions. Governments of all persuasions embraced it and used it intelligently as a marker of cultural diplomacy of what the state of Queensland might represent. The scale of the APT was ambitious, but it didn't emerge from a vacuum. Australians such as author and then cultural counsellor Nicholas Jose and art historian Claire Roberts were in Beijing in the late 70s and 80s and were deeply engaged with the contemporary art scene. Their intellectual and practical advocacy for artists was hugely important. Claire curated the important exhibition New Art from China, Post Mao Pop, which toured various Australian venues in 1992 and 1993. Earlier in the piece, the word spread about the APT's aspiration. I remember being in Tokyo in late 1989, four years before the first APT, and being told that a few Tiananmen self-exiled Chinese artists were in Tokyo and wanted to meet me. The gallery's intentions were already being talked about. I was tracked down by uh, Wen De Gu, Sai Guo Zhang and others. In a sense, that's a marker of the triennial's conduct. There was no convenient pre-existing network and the informality of relationships that developed set a pattern on how things would be done. What emerged from this was a distinctive personality which the gallery enjoyed, especially the ease with which it undertook projects which were speculative. In later triennials, it was prepared to look retrospectively, to think about artists, Leo Fan is an excellent example, who were well regarded but had remained distant from serious accounts of late 20th century non-Asian art and deserved to be part of a fuller international story. It's self-evident to note that the contemporary Asian art market took off and overheated. In the space of a decade, the gallery was in the hypothetical position of being unable to go out and buy the collection it already owned. In some cases, the gallery was the first major Western museum to exhibit or collect the substantial work by artists such as Sai Guo Zhang, Xu Bing, Monian Boomer, Takeshi Murakami, Li Bull, Zhang Xiaogang. Artists were helpful in accommodating a public gallery's limited acquisitions budget Yayo Kusama is well represented, including a major room installation, Soul Under the Moon. Ai Weiwei was first collected before his near-cult celebrity status took hold, and Goma's research library is vast. The APT was the product of a cultural policy imperative, an institutional realignment, 
and how the gallery sought to avoid becoming a pale reflection of other Australian curatorial conduct. It never tried to match what other collections had brilliantly achieved and where it had no chance of emulating. Perhaps the most unanticipated characteristic of the APT is its broader public reception. A couple of decades earlier, people would have accepted the one-liner that the public doesn't respond to contemporary art. But what's fascinating is that new art, made by artists the broad, broader public has never heard of, from cultures they often know little about, aroused such considerable curiosity. In 1996, Nicholas Sorota, director of the Tate Gallery, gave a lecture called Experience or Interpretation, The Dilemma of Museums of Modern Art. He spoke of the Pompidou Centre in Paris, which opened in 1977, and it sought to establish a new model for the interaction of creative disciplines in the 20th century, an open museum, a place where there is a natural contact between artists and the public in developing the most contemporary elements of creativity. He closed his essay with this final paragraph, quote, Our aim must be to generate a condition in which visitors can experience a sense of discovery. In looking at particular paintings, sculptures or installations in a particular room at a particular moment, rather than finding themselves standing on the conveyor belt of history, unquote. The first APT opened with close to 200 works by 76 artists from Southeast Asia, East Asia and the South Pacific. And it grew exponentially from a beginning which drew interest not only locally and the region, but also from North America and Europe. Whatever expectations people might have had about historical Asian continuity were, on occasions, ruptured. Lee Bull's performance made an amusing and poignant point about cultural and gender constructs. The opening crowd knew nothing about the planned and unannounced performance. It was an ongoing sequence of clothes swapping involving audience participation. At the end of the performance, the artist was wearing none of her own clothes. Many in the audience had to find and negotiate the exchange of their own.
To invoke a cliche, the excitement energy levels surrounding APT1 were high and people were keen to be there from the start. The official opening was held outside the gallery, in the underpass, and the road was closed off. The APTs have always included Australia, and this poses the question of why so few Asian-Australian artists were included. It was a deliberate curatorial decision not to make the exhibition about ourselves. The focus was to be elsewhere, and Australia was one amongst equals. The gallery had begun to buy contemporary Asian art, mainly Japanese, before the first APT. It was always planned that each APT and the activity in between would provide the opportunity to acquire works for the collection. As we know, the APT didn't cease after its third iteration. It became central to the gallery's role and its reputation. It was a cornerstone of advocacy for the case for the Gallery of Modern Art, and this enjoyed bipartisan political support. It was an idea which took a long time to realise, about 16 years from first thoughts to official opening. When Pauline Hanson's One Nation won 11 seats in the state election of 1998, Labor ruled with the support of an independent. One Nation's support base was largely regional. Premier Beattie told me that he couldn't announce the Gallery of Modern Art, so much money going into South Brisbane. He said it wouldn't last to quietly get on with things and to say nothing. And that after the, the next state election, he'd come to the gallery and announce GOMA. And he did. After the next election, One Nation had three members and a couple of weeks later, Beatty came to the gallery and announced GOMA was going to happen. The media offered nothing but straightforward reporting and support. APTs aroused curiosity locally for an exhibition where, for the general public, artists were unknown, cultures not fully understood, and where the more you knew, the greater the experience. The collection developed. Asian programming between APTs increased, and interests ranging from government, academic, museums and commercial were consolidated. Its success attracted international interest. In 2002, I was asked to speak at the Association of American Art Museum Directors Conference in Honolulu. How did the APT happen? How did it become the cultural marker of the Queensland Art Gallery's international profile? I recall a comment from one museum director whose Asian collections were regarded as one of the finest in America. It was more a lament than a comment. She said, we have 4,000 years of Asian art history and nothing after 1930. The example of the APT was to help in changing that. The idea that the West changes, effortlessly internationalises, and that Asian cultures must be true to their heritage and remain fodder for the West has collapsed in the past three decades. A particular art historical imperialism has vanished. If there's one thing that uh, pleased me most when I left Goma 20 years to the day after I arrived, it was my farewell gift, but it wasn't for me. Anish Kapoor was commissioned for a work in recognition of the gallery's commitment to the region and my role in it. He made a huge work and it was pretty much done and delivered at cost. If there's a market for the first APT and those that followed, it is reciprocated generosity. The APTs were never exercises in doctrinaire ambition. 
for carefully considered projects in profiling what's important and unfamiliar. As Wayne Goss said, it makes us think differently about ourselves.